And now, the Andy Greenwald Podcast. Andy, Andy. Hello, my name is Andy Greenwald. Welcome to my podcast. My guest today in the New York City studio is the, I don't even know what to call you, the adapter, the showrunner, the executive producer, the major domo of FX's Fargo, which has just recently returned for its excellent second season. Noah Hawley, welcome. Thank you so much. Is there a title you prefer? You have many. You wear many hats. I think they call it a multi-hyphenate. Oh, right. Which seems good. like, uh, I don't know, pretentious on some level. but uh, Most levels. Most levels, yes. Mostly because of the number of syllables <laughs> in it. But no, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, my, my motto is what else can I get away with? So that's all that I just I just keep trying to do that. And director, we should add to your yep. resume because yep. you directed episode two that's of, of season two. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm into you using industry slang. I want to say that you have your own shingle. I've never quite yep, understood there's that. A shingle. There's, there's a, a shingle. There's a shingle coming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a shingle. Have you ankled any projects recently? No ankling has has occurred. God. I hope... Could we do this whole thing in variety speed? Yeah, or? I'm out of them, though. <laughs> I don't know if you have any left. I don't. I was kind of hoping okay. that maybe since you yeah, live in I Hollywood, could. you know. I'm a little tired. Otherwise, I'd be, uh, <laughs> okay. you know, I'd be on it. Um, well, I appreciate very much you coming in. Um, as I was saying before we started, I'm a huge fan of Fargo, and particularly season two. Thank it's you. made me very happy. Um, we're recording this. Um, one episode has aired. We'll be posting this after three have aired. Yeah. Um, I've seen through four, so I can vouch for their quality at least one more week. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, it's interesting to... I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Which is, you say, particularly season two. Yeah. And I, I find that's one of the interesting things about doing this, which is they're totally different movies, yes. right? So the way that... My hope was that Joel and Ethan never make the same movie twice. So, like, someone could love season one and then season two. They're like, yeah, it's not really my movie. Right. But, but is that your feeling? Is it just more your movie or was it sort of execution based? I, I, I think it's a couple things. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I was not prepared to answer any, but I will do my best. Um, I think and, – and actually, every answer I'm going to give you, I'm going to spin into a question back at you. Okay, so this is that's ping pong. fine. Get yeah, ready. I'm ready. Um, I thought that – I was very happy that with the second season, the – the hard work of telling people what this is, which is not a literal adaptation of a film, right. which is, you know, a, this incredibly creative melange of a, of a style that we slightly knew, a world that we maybe knew, but completely new stories, completely new characters and completely new perspectives, that the hard work of telling us that is done. I, along with all the other viewers who love season one, watched this. We knew what we were, we didn't know specifically, but we knew what we were, t the boat we were, we'd bought a ticket for. So I, it, I really appreciated that because I did think that, um, my enjoyment of season one really kicked in around the time episode three or four aired when I finally, when I suddenly started to get your voice, right. you know, as opposed to the voice in my head of the movie. Sure. Um, but secondly, I just love how immediate the second season begins, how tightly it's drawn. And I love crime stories. And the first, show, the first season obviously was a crime story too. There was crime in it, but here we have a syndicate, right? You know, we have, oh, yeah. And and it's it's the type of crime story that I particularly love from um, crime novels from that era from the '60s and '70s. I was you know I have I'm burning through all my notes here because you asked me a question, but yeah, um, you know I, I was thinking of the Parker novels, right? Um, I was thinking of Elmore Leonard's, even his westerns a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I and, love Spencer. And these are right. And yeah, this idea, yeah. this world where there was a small time syndicate that actually had big time violence like this is a wonderful rich world to, well, to, what to I like, get into what i like is when you see the hotel that milligan and, and yes. brad get are staring in you're staying in you're like this is what they're fighting for yes. <laughs> they're fighting for like the ramada yeah in the middle of no place you know it's such it's such ridiculous stakes i think know? my favorite scene and i hope i hope it's occurred but in the it's, episodes that people have seen is in four the big one in the confrontation and the 
No, I love oh, that. Okay. We won't burn that. All right. We won't do that. The Actually, thing in the place? Yeah, that's... The, the uh, thing in the place is excellent. You yeah. handled that well. <laughs> Mise-en-scene was... No, the um, the conference room of the of the of of where these guys have been sent from. Oh, is yeah, it, yeah. Um, of, is a Kansas City uh-huh. uh, syndicate. And, yeah. And, you know, it reminded me of, of, of Stringer Bell's meeting on The Wire where, right. you know, the, the Robert's Rules of Order and a criminal right. conspiracy. I loved the sort of, you know aspirational white collar drabness of this vicious syndicate yeah. i love that idea yeah i i got to direct that scene just because sometimes on on the show we're, we're we've got 10 pounds of story in a five pound bag so you literally <laughs> just can't make the show in yeah. the time allotted so um so that was a fun one to shoot and we literally had a had a grip push brad G- garrett's chair into screen because yeah. i had this idea that i wanted him to kind of roll into frame so well you're using his i mean all the actors are used so well and we'll get to some of them specifically but his physicality in particular is such a underutilized tool. He's six, eight. He's a huge man. Yeah. And, and, you know, he has this great sort of menace and awkwardness to him at the same time. He has very sad eyes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for and such he a big feels guy. like, you know, like he's straight out of the movie salesman or something. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But he's the muscle coming in and you just feel like the years on the road that he's spent, you know, just all those, well, you know, you have that great scene in the, in the Ramada where he, he has some tips about hair care for being on right. the road. Yeah. 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 And just these the soft know, water, these, these towns and these bad assignments, but it's what he's got. Yes. And this is sort of the theme that runs throughout the series. Um, people take pride in their work and you are not mocking that. I appreciate that too. Yeah, people yeah. have people. Everyone has to do a job, there's and a, you got to do your best with it. There's a danger, and I, I, I that's inherent, you know, and and something that I, you know, I'm aware of since I can see the sort of reaction to the movie mm-hmm. that that Joel and Ethan made, you know, which was a sort of universal acclaim, and then a sort of sense from some people that maybe there was a a mocking mm-hmm. quality to 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 the region, and that's something I'm very um, eager to avoid any sense that we're p- talking down yes. about these people. These are these are good, hardworking, decent people. You know what I mean. And and there's humor that comes from the region and and a, and a sort of you know inability to communicate, which is as Joel and Ethan put it in their film, a, a regional quality. Yeah. You know, because that's the interesting thing is my job is not to depict Minnesota as it actually is. It's to it's to be in the world of the movie. Yes. Although I would say, and this is something I wrote in my piece about the second season, um, that I very much appreciate that I, the way that I've been able to, and I, I think anyway, distinguish the worldviews that Joel and Ethan have and that you have on your Fargo. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that in general, they, and, you know, and this goes through all their movies, life is kind of a cruel joke that you're waiting for the punchline for. And that is not the vibe I get from Fargo. There's a sense of, the warm hearth and the the cold wolves outside and this is how we make our way through life and i not only do i find not only do i enjoy that perspective i think that plays better on television where you have to continue to bring us inside and bring us something you know it's it's not a two-hour limited experience you you want to comfort us in some way even as you unsettle us yeah i mean i think a big part of the adaptation process was understanding the difference between a movie and a a television Mm -hmm. show you know, even though it's it's you know it's a complete story every year, it has to survive a ten hour journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if you look at the movie Fargo, the tone is actually much more comic than I think that we do, because we have to sustain the stakes have to be high. You know, mm-hmm. so you know 
when we were shooting the first year, we were calling it No Country for Old Fargo, you know, because you need that dramatic infrastructure, that life or death mm-hmm. quality. To, and then around that, you build the the identity of, of the Fargo sort of quirk and, and, and sensibility. Yeah, Fargo, the movie, when you rewatch it, it's, it's sort of these no-hopers circling a drain. I mean, it, 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 it plays, it's a limited story. And you, yeah. you kind of know where it's going to head, know where good, but you're going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Yeah, and she, you know, the, I mean, but at the at the same time, that, that final scene of course, has su- is such a poignant scene that, um, you know, that it honors those characters in such a dramatic way. That mm-hmm. and the, you know, here you are and, and it's a beautiful day scene, you know, there's that simplicity, that inability of these characters to understand the scope of the evil that they've faced, mm-hmm. you know, and to, you know, the Tommy Lee Jones and No Country to... You have to make a choice to be a part of that world, and he chooses not to be in the end. That's which right. We echo with Bob Odenkirk's character in in, in the first year. Yeah, the, I, I'm glad you mentioned that No Country scene. I, I think about that scene a lot. I, in, in not just in terms of the Coen Brothers cinema or your show, but all fiction. You know, yeah. I think it's one of the most powerful ideas that a character would want to tap out. Right. Um, generally, that's the end of story, but they found a way to make it a deeply powerful and emotional insight into story yeah well and just the 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 casualties you know which which are not just physical casualties or you know i mean you just sort of see out of that scene odenkirk i mean he sits at home and he drinks looking into the fire like it's just as he says he doesn't want to think about the nature of things you know like it's too it's too much he doesn't want to live in a world where the guy he went to high school with is capable of what what he he did Mm -hmm. so and and that's just as as sort of heartbreaking as as a physical loss i think absolutely um i'd like to go backwards a little bit and just ask you about the what went on between our conversations you and i spoke um over the phone at the end of season Mm -hmm. one um the first season i i just it's so unlikely in so many ways you know that i think that you were able to make something so successful so compelling and so original um and, you know, it, it did obviously did very well. You won an Emmy since I spoke to you. Congratulations. I did. Thank you so much. That was exciting. I know. Um, at what point during the production cycle or the airing cycle of season one did it become clear that John Landgraf and the folks at FX were be interested in a second season? Um, and at what point did you begin to agree that that might be a good idea, having already pushed this rock up the hill once? Yeah, I mean, what I really like about working with, with FX and... and and um, John Langraff and Gina Bailey and, um, and and everyone over there is that there isn't this knee-jerk reaction either to success or failure. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Very much so. Um, and though the reality is when, when in any business do you do a mic drop and walk away from a success, do you know what I mean? But at the same time, we did set the bar so high and and – so there was a legitimate question, which which was, do I have another story that everybody feels as good as good? Do we think we can? The only reason to do it is if we can top it or equal it. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And and to just sort of de facto do a second year because we were successful, nobody wanted that. And and you also see it in the fact that you know we we premiered in April of last year and we're in October this year, and and the idea that we're going to take our time and that there has to be a value to this limited series. Um, phenomenon which is it there's it's more of an event right mm-hmm. and and um you know it's if you just hit that air date every year then how is it not a tv show on some level you know yeah. what i mean so 
uh, and and the process that we went through in the first year, which was just it just by default because they picked the show up in January of that year, and we couldn't possibly start shooting until the following winter. That's right. I had ten months to to write and to break all the but, stories. That sounds like a lot, but it's still a, a tall order. It's so much more. I mean, usually you have ten weeks before you start shooting True. to put a room together, and you you can e- only ever be like three scripts ahead. And, right. And you know so. So I separated the writing from the production, and it was so successful because... So you, all the scripts were done when you went into production this year? Uh, no, there were f- actually fewer this year, mostly just because it was a bigger year and a sort of harder year. Mm-hmm. But all 10 hours were broken. Like, I knew exactly right. what the story was. I just fell a little bit behind on the on the scripts. Um, and... Um, but you know, so so the value of that, you know, of, of knowing what the end is before you start shooting is, you know, I could go, I could find a, a diner for for uh, Keith Carradine's character, knowing that I needed two doors because mm-hmm. in episode nine, Molly's got to come in the back door and Malvo's got to go out the front door. You right. know what I mean? Right. And and I could say, okay, well, I know that the bear trap is a thing, right? You, so you could seed it through. So, it, right? you know, you go into that garage in that very first scene and I show you this big shiny machine gun and you think, oh, check off, like that That gun's going to play a part. But mm-hmm. really what I'm showing you is the bear trap on the wall and every time we go back, I'm showing you that bear trap and then we use that bear trap, yeah. you know. Um, and s- so many times on shows, I think they get halfway through the season and they finally figure out, oh, we should do this and wouldn't it have been great if we could have laid all that stuff in. Of so... So that's the the joy of of it really and is is to really be able to figure out in advance exactly what the whole story is. So at what point was oh, right. you had another question? No, I I like to stack the questions like Jenga tiles. Um that this was what what was your what was the eureka moment for a season 2? What was the moment and it, and if it was if the answer to this is just well Lou alluded to this and I was already thinking of it then was there Beyond that, the next the next beat, the next character, right. the next scene that sort of began to make it feel real to you. Well, um, because that is another thing you seeded in advance. Yeah, you know, I put that story in the Keith Carradine story to her about um, Sioux Falls um, originally, just as a point of reference for him as her father to be able to say, "I've seen something like this before, I think, and if I'm right, you might mm-hmm. not want to go down this road." Mm-hmm. But then because I thought it was funny, I also had Gus's boss say, oh, no, it's Sioux Falls all over again and, mm-hmm. and alluded to the fact that there was some business there. Um, but my intention was just to use it for that purpose as a, as a sort of point of reference. And then, you know, as I hadn't written the last two scripts. And, and the deeper I got in, I thought, well, if we are going to do another one of these, it might be interesting to sort of set up what that story is Um just to tweak the audience's curiosity to say, oh, I really want to see that story. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily because we would do it second. I mean, maybe you would do something else, and then in a third year you'd go back mm-hmm. and tell that story because I think the show can sustain that. And then, um, you know, so we added those other scenes in episode 9 and 10 that, that alluded to it. And then, of course, I was on the hook to, like, have Lou sit on his porch for a night. You know, there were a bunch there, of things you, that I kind of set up. You wrote yourself into a corner Yeah, a bit. so, you know, you'd be in the room going, okay, so when is he on that porch? And, and, and uh um, but yeah, that was as sort of as far as I got there. Um, but what the story was, you know, that sort of came after the season. And it's an interesting process, you know, because the assignment that I got in, in 
you know, in adapting this in the first place, which was to say FX wants to make a series out of the movie Fargo. Um, and they're wondering, can you do it without Marge, by which they mean any of the characters from the movie, by which they mean none of the story. Or it's like, So you're adapting a movie without any of the elements from mm-hmm. the movie. What is that? It's basically, can you make us a Coen Brothers movie? Mm-hmm. And then just for me, I had just had this instinctual... I saw in my head an emergency room with two guys in it, you know, one with a broken nose who's a very civilized man, and the other was something else. And okay. who are those guys, and where's the one guy come from, and how do he break his nose, and what happens when these two guys meet? And that felt like a scenario that could su- support a Cohen-esque mm-hmm. story. And then, and then this time, I just had this image of this woman driving home with a guy stuck stuck out of her windshield and starting dinner for her husband which there it was a true story i remember reading about like 10 or 15 years ago um you know which is sort of the only true story that i've ever included in my true story show yes but it seemed like such a a, the premise seemed right on and then the question was well like who's the woman and who's her husband and who's in the windshield and and you know you sort of go from there I would imagine that this time around, after the, the, the huge success of season one, that you had an even larger potential talent pool to cull from. Um, when you wrote characters like uh, like a Hank or, or Peggy, um, did are you the sort of person that writes two actors? Do you have people in mind? Or no, uh, no. I mean, the, you know, and, and probably because I came out of fiction writing, you know, the character is the character, and then you find the right actor to play the character, right? And it's, it's dangerous, you, you know, and I, I was always attracted. I mean, even with the the first two shows I did, I never wanted to cast mm-hmm. those actors who everybody knew, like, who you can't see past the actor. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, where they come in and they play the role and the character sort of is swallowed up by the actor, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, even Jeremy Renner, who I worked with on, on my oh. first show. Oh, we're coming back to him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, even he was, he, I mean, nobody really knew him at that time, you know, and... and um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I wrote myself into a much bigger cast this year around. And, and, and But, you know, I'm always attracted to, on, to ensemble writing, and I love the idea that you can enter a narrative through multiple points of view. And, in fact, by creating empathy for multiple characters, I mean, we know they're on a collision course, right? And the easiest thing is if one's a black hat and one's a white hat, and then it's very clear who you're rooting for. But the fact that we have... Jeffrey Donovan and, you know, Jesse Plemons and Brad Garrett and, you know, Gene Smart and Patrick Wilson. And they're all we don't know how they're going to collide, mm-hmm. but we know they're all going to collide. Um, and when they finally do, who who are you rooting for? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, we know who the good good guys are, but at the same time. And we know that Lou's going to sit on his porch and survive to run a diner. Right. But that's pretty much all we know. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a word that we used right before we started taping. I, I'm sure we're going to use it again after this question. But in regards to the cast, a lot of these actors are actors that I've been a fan of before. I certainly have seen before and have been wonderful in many things. The one common thread th- through the performances, to my mind, is that they all seem like they're having a blast. Yeah. Now, that's not in any way to say that they are, you know, mugging or right. or commenting or, you know, like, like what you were saying before, being disrespectful to an accent or a region. Yeah. But they seem liberated by the world that you've created or the, the tone that the Coen brothers said and you know, the, the, the wonderful combination of those two things. And it's, it's intoxicating. Yeah. 
Well, and it's also the range of what they get to play. I yes. mean, as I talked about Odenkirk, I mean, I think Bob, when he when he came in, and he did, he auditioned, you know. Um, I'm sure he thought this was just a comic foil. Um, and he didn't know, and I didn't tell him what the journey was, but he had two or three days in the later episodes where he would have these eight-page dialogue days, these really powerful mm-hmm. big scenes. And, you know, that, that, that two-hander with Lester, which was like a seven-page scene, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, and it was the same with, with, you know, Nick Offerman this year or, or Kristen Milioti or, you know, which is, and, you know, Kirsten, it's like nobody's playing, no one actor's playing drama and another actor's playing comedy. That's, that's a great point. You yeah. know what I mean? And so they get to do a lot of things and a lot of unexpected things and, and, and the violence of it and no one's safe and, and, all, you know, all those things. And the fact that it's a true story, quote unquote, um, allows me to to make turns that are not fictional that are crazy fictional turns that you go well but that's the way it happened you know what i mean like yeah. truth is stranger than fiction and and yeah you know when i met with with nick offerman you know he had read the first hour and in the first hour he's just local color right and i met him and he's like you know that sounds good to me local color and i said well wait let me tell you what what happens with this guy you know and and uh um, you know, I mean, and Nick told me after, um, you know, that, that, um, you know, we gave him the best day of his professional career. Like, wow. you, you know, that he had this, he got to play so many things that normally you have to do like five roles to get those five elements. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and I, but I think that's part of the joy of the, of the show. And, you know, you said fun and, and, and fun is an important word for me because I do think like, even when you're making something really serious if you're doing it well there's a joy in in just you know going all the way you know what i mean and and really finding that moment and then you know in the first in the first year in shooting the first two episodes which we shot together we had i think three days in lester's basement right so we're (laughs) in lester's basement there's murder there's blood there's all this sort of stuff all the beats the whole first Mm -hmm. hour in Lester's basement, and at the end of the third day, we shot the scene where um, where Billy Bob takes a shit in front of that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know he 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 Lyndon Baines Johnson's the guy. Yeah. And the fact that the show in one day could be both of those things was really great. You know yeah. what I mean? Absolutely. You mentioned Bob Odenkirk. He he sat in this in this chair a couple months ago, and uh, for Better Call Saul, and you know he's a I was blown away. He's a very modest. Guy, yeah. especially about his acting ability. Yeah, yeah. And he gave you and Fargo an enormous amount of credit for showing to him, I think, that he was capable of doing those parts. And he gives all credit, of course, to writers. He's a very modest guy. But, you know, that's that's sort of an amazing thing when you realize that, you know, performers, even great performers like him, they want to be challenged. Yeah, no, and they, they want do. To, they want to be able to play a full range they of They do. Things. I mean, Brad Garrett, you know, he came in. He was, you know, we cast him. He sent me a bottle of wine. Like, he was so excited to be able to play this, this yes. much, this different stuff, because people get pigeonholed, you know? Why why have you been able to, with this show, crack this, crack the sky a little bit in terms of television storytelling? And what I mean is, I've been bemoaning for a long time now, and I, I, well, a long time in my TV writing career, about the sort of plague of grimness and seriousness. Yeah. Now, you know, your show is plenty of grim moments. There's, there's violence, there's death, there's horror uh, yeah. looming. But... For me, you know, darkness is illegitimate without lightness. You just you need to be able to define the the tone. And 
there's a freedom with this world that you've you've i, I don't even I, I still don't quite know what word to use um uh but it's the word world that you have now mastered where you know we can have these very tense just throat clutching standoffs and then you can also have a ufo fly in right um yeah. do you think that um, a word I used in the, my piece about season two was Trojan horsing. I mean, do you think right. that you were the, the benefit of the pre-existing material allowed you to draw yeah, a mean, bigger uh, a bigger world than other shows? Yeah, on some level, you know, I, I can say, you know, guys, it's not like I want a ten-minute parable sequence, but it's a <laughs> Coen Brothers movie, and we kind of need one. Right. You know what I mean? So but there was some of that in the first year. Yeah, I wanted one the whole time, but. But, you know, the great thing about having that body of work, which is, you know, I mean, no one is more inventive in the way a story is told than, yes. than Joel and Ethan Cohen. It allowed me to, to steer into something that I naturally believe, which is that the structure of a story should reflect the content of a story. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we can talk also about, you know, how I constructed the show to sort of end run around binge watching in a kind of way, you yeah. know, which was not to keep people from binge watching but was you know each episode starts with a sort of disorienting sense of where am i which Mm -hmm. you know we all enter that kind of four episode fugue state where you're enjoying it you're watching it but you stop thinking about it because it's just coming at you exactly right so you know if you end an episode and say let me start another one and it starts with something where you're like where am i Mm -hmm. you know it it sort of wakes you up again i think so yeah i mean we again i don't think this is spoiling it we're we're going to be posting this after episode three but episode four we've been in 1970s episode four begins in 1950-something, right? Or 60. Yeah, yeah, 1951. Okay, so... Yeah. And it's it's a phenomenal scene. Yeah, we started, you know, an hour in in our first year uh, with uh, Lester buying socks, you know, in, in, you know, six months earlier, (laughs) which which is just, you know, what I find really fun is the minute that you start deconstructing this, uh, you know, because it's not a two-hour movie in which you're a slave to plot and you got to get the main story out as quickly as possible um and because you're not a tv series where all these people have to live and come back a, a traditional and, you know ongoing I mean? TV yeah series. yeah um you're something else it's like a t- it is a 10-hour movie which uh, allows me to sort of say well let's let's here's what our story is from you know the straight line of our story and then let's look at all the pieces that are not necessarily the ones you would tell in a two-hour movie um, you know what I mean? Because you don't have the time. But either it's a, th- a you know a thematic detour you take, or a character detour, or you know a lot of th- very much in this year especially we played around with point of view. And I would mm-hmm. talk to the directors about the idea of always be aware of whose point of view you're going into a scene with, mm-hmm. and then that person is not necessarily the point of view you're coming out of the scene with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and so there is that deliberate sense of um, you know I think that I've talked about the fact that. In the in the first hour, you know, as scripted, when when Rye is hit by the car, you know, in the script, Peggy gets out of the car and we see her and she drives home and we're with her and then her husband comes home and we have that whole scene like right there. Yeah. And then in the editing room, I thought, well, it would be interesting if the, if he gets hit and the car just drives away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I cut it that way and then I thought, oh, well, now what's interesting is let's add a scene uh, of Ed at the butcher shop. And now we're coming home with Ed, right? So That's now right. we're in Ed's world, and Ed's the solid good guy, and you know, and he sits down with his wife, and we're, you know, we delay even that, you know, they sit down on to, the magazines, these to, little details, yeah, yeah. 
And then, you know, we finally get to the guy in the garage, which, you know, it's always I'm always amazed with audiences like they forget that yes. a guy was hit by a car and is in the windshield of somebody's car. We trust you so yeah. much that if you're telling us people are having dinner, then we're like, oh, we're having dinner. Right. It, it's, it's such a great uh, uh, tool in the filmmaker's uh, toolkit. And so now after all the violence in the garage occurs and 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 um, and he says you hit him with the car like now suddenly we're seeing it we're going back and we're seeing yes. it but peggy looks totally different to us in telling it that way than she would if she got out of the car after she hit him and we went home with her do it's you know what i mean totally different introduction to yeah her. um you you alluded to speaking to the directors about points of view and one of the things that i find truly remarkable about fargo is the the consistency and creativity of the visuals of the of the direction of the series and i find that particularly noteworthy because um you know this is not an uh directorial autorist show right um in comparison to another limited series that we yeah. don't need to compare it to directly right. which was although and i then think, wasn't although i think you win uh this was the first season was not directed all by one person but it may very well may have been in a lot of ways right and i, and I was so struck by the fact that it not just not just was it divided by uh, you know two, each director did two episodes I believe in the first season yeah um, which is a little bit more along the lines of a traditional drama um, the directors that you had are really talented veteran TV directors I mean you, you had um, you, well, this season you have Michael Apadal who's yeah. done terrific work on Mad Men and many other shows and Randall Einhorn and yeah. Colin Buxy how did you, and how the season add Noah uh-huh. Hawley to the yeah, list yeah. how do you uh, how do you guarantee the consistency of that? How does it feel like such a such a uh, a linear product, even though many different voices are coming into the room? Yeah, you know, to to you know to try to make something that that feels like a Coen Brothers movie or fits into that world, you know, these guys aren't just two of the best writers in in cinema; they're two yes. of the best filmmakers of our generation or any generation, and and so that was a huge part of it, and and. It's not like I could really – I mean I decided that I can't call them and say, hey, how do you make a Coen Brothers movie? You know what I mean? Like it's hard enough for the, to get them to say anything when they win an Oscar. True. And and just I have to sidebar here. I, in your interviews for the first season, you mentioned how you had had one interaction with them about the approval to make it happen. Have you had any communication with them since? Yeah. You know, I had a couple of – I mean I, I saw them a couple of times in the first year and then I saw them not – I mean I'm in New York now, but I, the last time I was in here – they were nice enough to give us a Peabody, and I went by to see them the next day, and I say, hey, you won a Peabody last night, and they were like, really? Um, but uh, – and they were – you know, they were editing Hail Caesar and, yeah. and, and in that in that world. But they were making a movie this time. You know, they were making Hail Caesar, and, and so they were off in their own world, and, and I think it must be odd for them. You know, you got to think. Like, they created this movie in mm-hmm. 1997 or yeah. something like Six, that. Think, Six, yeah. and and – you know, and and it, you know, there's no way that it got a marketing push the way that we got a marketing push. So to walk around, you know, almost 20 years later and see billboards and you know double decker buses <laughs> with a crocheted sweater around the, you know, that whole thing must have been very odd for them. And you know, one uh, one of our executive producers worked with them on seven movies, and he and he, you know, he called them to say, you know, season two, we're st- and I think Joel was like, you're still making that thing, you know. So it's like. I, I I like that you know I have their approval and yeah. and the the fact that that they've said to me it's not their medium they don't you know, watch TV they don't you know um, and the last thing they would ever want to do is give me notes because they don't want to get notes and and so I think they they're just happy that it's out there and that they they've seen enough of it to know that they like it 
Yeah. Um, and if they think about it more than that, it starts to be a little odd. It would, I think. it would actually probably be a bad sign if you were hearing a lot more from them at this point. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I said to FX early on, you know, you can't make a Coen Brothers movie by committee, right? right. And for better or worse, you know, it's got to be a singular vision. And in this case, that, that vision is mine. And so, Although this actually ties back to the original question. It, it is your vision and you have to be there enacting it. But you've been able to draft in these yeah. these very talented directors to Yeah. So, you know, so what I did in the prep process to go into the beginning was to sit down. And we had, um, you know, Adam Bernstein who did the first two hours. And he and I spent a lot of time sort mm-hmm. of going, okay, what are the rules? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What are the... They never pull focus between two things. If there's a scene and I'm talking to you, usually the camera goes to you. And then when it's my line, it, you, you know, you, the focus shifts. Yep. They, they never do that, you know. So we're not going to do that. The camera moves in very specific ways. It's They don't use handheld really ever. Mm-hmm. Steadicam very rarely. You're usually laying down track. You know, Deacons came in. He introduced the jib arm, which is an arm that sort of allows you to move the camera around. But they really just use it. To reposition the camera. It's mm-hmm. not like the camera's ever floating on the arm. It's more right. like, we'll get your coverage and then we'll swing over and we'll get yours without having to change the setup. Um, color palette is a huge thing. You yes. look at, at, at their palette is so controlled. You know, I chose every extra. You know, I, you know, at the beginning of every year, I stand in a conference room with like 200,000 pictures of people. Yeah. And I go, okay, here's a here's a Gerhardt goon, here's a Gerhardt goon, here's who should be in the VFW, here's, you know. Well, these things matter, and I feel like they're often overlooked. You know, there, there, there are anecdotal stories about, on the set of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner rejecting an ashtray. You right. Know, or whatever. And, yeah. And if you're the guy in charge of the ashtrays, that's probably hugely annoying. Yeah. But if you're a viewer, you may not even appreciate it, but it's made the experience better. Yeah. You have to have the totality of vision if you want to, if you're going to make it anything as good as, as well as and the costumes and all you know i mean it's it's we have amazingly talented people and i don't want to give the impression that every idea was mine but there were certainly moments where i was like well you know with wrench and numbers it'd be funny if they had a, a midnight cowboy dynamic you know what i mean the fringe mm-hmm. and the rats are the rizzo code mm-hmm. or you know or or with malvo even that idea because i talked to billy early and he had a sort of sense, well, you know, maybe he'll wear black pants and a thing. And I was like, no, we can't dress him like a villain. Like, the things that he wear can't be cool. They have to be cool because he's wearing them, you know? Yeah. So the look that he has is so odd, but it comes across as so iconic in the end. You know what I mean? That's right. Um, and and uh, and this season you added, you know, as as befits the era, you added some fantastic visual flourish with split screens. And yeah. It's sort of a, almost a grindhouse the aesthetic. It feels like a 70s. Yeah, screen, which, which was not a... Point my vision going into it i mean that was a, a an editorial um discovery and mostly coming from the fact that that the first year was was about four people really mm-hmm. and it right. was much easier to keep track of them and this year was about you know i mean let's say 10 you know five storylines 12 characters mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. and and the rea- reality was you know i mean game of thrones does this where you'll do the Tywin Lannister story and then you'll never see him again for the whole hour and then you'll go and do this yes. other story and I just felt like it, I'm losing tension because yes. if I show the Gerharts in the first five minutes and you never see them again like that threat has now you're not it diminishes in your mind I mean that's my as a big fan and obviously frequent commenter on Game of Thrones my biggest frustration with it is that the episodes are not episodes they're right. just kind of hourly data dumps right of where we are and then ultimately it feels like something but yeah so i started cutting these kind of interstitials with split screen of saying all right well we're going from patrick wilson to jesse plemons 
let's seg- cycle through where is everybody right now, you know? So you'd have Milligan in his car or, mm-hmm. or Dodd at home or whatever. And then I thought, oh, well, that has the added benefit of feeling like a 70s filmmaking mm-hmm. trope. Um, so that's great. So now, okay, now that we're using the cinematic language, let's now incorporate it into the actual filmmaking mm-hmm. of the show. And, and you'll see, you know, I mean, Keith Gordon, who did Hour 7 and 8, was a sort of master at at designing these sequences where he shot for the split screens. And you'll mm. see we sort of move into sometimes three or even four kind of screens in a way that's completely designed by the way he shot it for that. And then other directors were less sort of able to keep that in their minds uh, potentially because no one ever asked you to do it. You know what I mean? So, in you know, usually the instinct is you put an actor in the center of the frame and you put another actor in the center of the frame and, you know, you know what I mean? And, yeah. And I think that's legitimate, too, um, definitely. But, you know, I don't think if we do a third year that it's going to be the split screen thing. I mean, it's that's the other great thing about making a different movie every time is that what does this movie want to be? And the fact that I had more time in the editorial this year um, allowed me to find that um, in a way that is that, you know, I mean, I I think the work would be much poorer without Mm. that attention to detail. Is there a third year to come? That's not been officially announced, but it's possible in your mind. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, on some level, um, it's such a – I mean, there are no rules, right? So it's sort of like going, why would you give that up? Because the minute you go do something else, suddenly there are rules again or Mm -hmm. people are going to say, oh, well, you know, it's not Fargo, so you can't, you know, do those kinds of things necessarily. But, you know, I do think – you know, what I love is, is, you know, here's filmmakers who have made No Country for Old Men and A Serious Man – and Raising Arizona, and Lebowski, you know what I mean, and Miller's Crossing, and you go, okay, well, what if that was one big movie? You know, I mean, all that's available to me, and, and you know, what I have that, that you know, other people don't have, you know, um, is I have this canon mm-hmm. of work, not for me to rip off, but for me to sort of say, um, you know, let's go to the, you know, to the big book and say, okay, well, um, e- uh, you know, what's a type of story? Here's the type of story I want to tell. Are there any correlations? And usually what you get is just that they, the left turns that they make. And you go, okay, well, I, I'm not going to make the same turn, but it reminds me that I need a left turn mm. at some point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, my first meeting with FX, my question was, what's our Mike Yanagita? That's the whole raison d'etre of this show is what's our Mike Yanagita. Classic what, scene. Yeah, what's the element? The guy who calls her from out of the blue from high school and they have lunch and he tells her the sob story about he married the girl from high school and she died and he's just so lonely and then you find out that whole thing was made up. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why is this in the movie? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, we need that. We need that why is this in the movie thing and my feeling about why it's in the movie is because it adds to the truthiness of the true story because right. you're like, why else would you put it in unless it actually happened? If you go to the big book of Coen Brothers, right. it's not just stories. There's also tones that you can play with. I would yeah. Imagine. And, you know, I had this conversation with, with FX early on because, again, the script is one thing and then you're going to make the movie and and, and and tone is the big question, right? Because the, the Coens sort of write a lot of stuff that they don't make and it's never a mm-hmm. Coen Brothers movie. That's you right. know what I mean? So. So, you know, we would start with our, you know, I'd send them my casting picks and whatever. And I started to hear, um, you know, this, well, it's not a comedy, you know. And I was like, yeah, but that's sort of the wrong word. And, I, you know, I went in to sort of, I was like, let's sit down and have a conversation about tone. And 
you know, because I thought it was funny, I made like a, a spreadsheet, which was like, you know, um, you know, comedy and drama and the Coen brothers. And I had Miller's Crossing mm-hmm. on one side and, and you know, um, um, like Lady Killers on the other side. And I was like, here's where, you know, uh, which the was Diagram, slightly a sweet spot. Right, right. Yeah. And and um, but, you know, I said it's not really a question of of is it a comedy or not? Because Fargo to me is the com the 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 tension between comedy and tragedy, yes. right? And I and agree. and you know, I said the example is if I cast Javier Bardem, right, and everyone at FX is high fiving in the halls, and then I gave him that haircut, right? Like Joel and Ethan gave him that haircut, they laughed at his face for thirty minutes, and there's nothing funny about it in the movie, right? It's just really unsettling. It's deeply unsettling. Right. You think you can laugh, and then you see what's happening. Right. So. Just because I think something's funny doesn't mean it's intended to be yes. comic. You know what I mean? And I think it is that tension of something that you feel like, well, that's kind of funny, but um, but it's also really unsettling. Like, that's the sweet spot of the show. Uh, I think we have about five minutes left, so I do want to just burn through a couple more non-Fargo-specific topics yes. if, you're, if you're game. You mentioned a moment ago of uh, other projects you might do that you know don't give you this freedom. Right. It was announced this week that you were going to be working on a, um, a project for FX so from uh-huh. Fox Studios. Yeah. Based on a character I know well from my deep nerdy oh, comic yeah. book fandom, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a character called Legion, who yes. in the comic books is Charles Xavier's son, and he's half Israeli, and right. he basically is either the most powerful mutant in the world or the most dangerous, or right. both. This seemed left field, and I just need to know, is this the, is this the sort of circumstance where Fox says, well, here's our big playroom of toys do you want to grab one or was it a little more complicated than that it sort of came about you know peter rice who used to run the searchlight the Mm -hmm. film studio and and greenlit the actual movie uh x-men the first Mm x-men movie um you know we had a conversation with the producers lauren Schuler donner and brian singer Mm -hmm. and uh, about is there a tv version of this and and you know he drafted Gina Bailey, who's an FX, at, an executive at FX, and and you know, I got the question like, would this be interesting to you at all? You know, I'm not a huge comic nerd or or, or superhero guy. I did read the X Men a lot when when I was a kid, um, and you know, my feeling was a, any franchise that starts in a concentration camp has to be really concerned with the true nature of evil and and and, yeah. and a more morally comp- complicated place. But so I thought, well, I don't know. It doesn't feel like a natural fit. But let me think about um, what story that I would want to tell that might fit into this. In other words, let me make the show and then apply and then find the character, yeah. which may be a backwards way to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But what I liked about Legion was at the heart of it is, is this story about a guy who, who is either very mentally ill or he has these powers. Yeah. Or both. Right. Yes. And 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 that was a very interesting idea to me. And again, structurally, like if you have a character who doesn't know if something is real or not, then that becomes the journey for the audience as well. Um, And then, you know, the other thing that it does is allow you to sort of turn a story into a myth. Right. Which is what these these characters are. Yeah. There are sort of gods and, and everything. So. You know, you can kind of elevate, elevate the stakes of, of the world and everything. And I don't know. It's a departure, and it's interesting. Um, um, I really like the first script that I wrote, and we're, you know, and I will, I'll direct that one, and, and we'll shoot it in February, I guess. So that's that's already that far along. Um, yeah. That's yeah. exciting. Um, speaking of other writing, um, I wanted to tell you this, that, you know, I moved to New York in 1999 out of college, and I remember walking into a bookstore in Brooklyn where I had just moved, and I picked up a book called Conspiracy of Tall Men. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. And Thank that was you. that was your first novel. It was, yeah. And 
you know, I always remembered that book, and I took me two weeks into Fargo season one to even make the connection uh-huh. that that was yours. And you know, obviously, we can't do this in in five minutes, but um, I was curious about the journey from focusing on being a novelist to yeah. what you were doing now. And I was excited to hear as you came in that you've returned to fiction as well. Yeah, I've actually the, I've published four. I know you've written books, books since then. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. To that. But but you know, it's almost like a penance. You know, of like why am I still doing this? It's not going anywhere. You know, I mean, I've published all of them, so that's that's you know. That's but it can a be a lonely. It can be a lonely thing. Well, it's very different. You know, writing a novel is like a country road, right? It's just quiet, and you're you know spending this time, and and then the Hollywood's this freeway, you know, and quite literally. <laughs> and this l- latest book that I s- sold, I'd written half of it before the Fargo Odyssey began and then we started winning awards and my agent dusted it off and sent it out and we sold it. Um, and then suddenly I had to finish it and yes. I had to finish it like in the last eight months, you know, while I was finishing the show and everything. And, and meeting with uh, Fox about mutants and all sorts of yeah, other things. Yeah, so it's, you know, I've been busy, certainly, but you know, it's, I, my, from the very first time I came down here, I was in San Francisco and I was just a novelist and I'd written a, a screenplay because it was fun, I, I felt, and, and um, um, but I had a sense like, you should never, you, everything that you love doing, you should keep doing. Because the minute that you decide, I'm just a TV writer, I'm just a film writer, like, they own you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's right. And, and and the reality was, you know, so... And when I ended up on my first staff, because I'd, I'd sold three pilots, and, and and if one of them went, I should know how to produce something. So I went on, on the, the staff of Bones, and, and, and you know, I, I made a lot of good friends, and, you know, there was a really lovely people. But I sort of realized, like, oh, I'm having a career, and then there's this TV staffing thing that's kind of a job, you know? Yes. And that's a different thing um and so i just kept pushing the stuff forward you know it's uh you know a screenplay here or there and the you know the book stuff and then now of course it's all sort of hitting at the same time which is a very heady kind of feeling I'm sure yeah. what, what is the new book and it's coming in may you said of, of 2016 yeah it's called before the fall um and it's a story about um um a, a private uh plane that goes down off of the coast of uh of, of new york um uh, and and uh, you know this this painter who was invited on at the last minute by this Roger Ailes type uh, guy's wife um, he survives and then this four year old boy survives and they have to get to shore and then it's the story of both of their relationship going forward and 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 uh, and, and going back to all the other people who are on the plane to try to solve the mystery of why it went down. Interesting. A plane going down is also a, a plot device in the conspiracy of Tom. Yeah, Man. I fly a lot, so I figure it's good. Like I'm warding off. Yeah. my hope. Knock on wood. You know. You well, know this is I mean? all. There's a lot of wood left. Yeah, 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 Knock yeah. away. Yeah. Um, uh, finally, I, I I let you go. You have a Paley Fest uh, event this evening, but you alluded to this. You created a show for ABC called The Unusuals uh-huh. about six years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was a really interesting show. It did not get a fair shake on the network level. Um, you had this incredible moment of you had Jeremy Renner in your cast. Yeah. Uh, six months before Hurt Locker came out. Yeah. Um, Jeremy Renner is a particular obsession of the now departed Hollywood Prospectus podcast. We are obsessed with him and his career as a house flipper. Yeah. He, he is a fascinating figure to me. <laughs> uh-huh. What can you tell me about Jeremy Renner, the basically about to break actor in 2009? Because it's crazy. They had him under contract for seven yeah. years and canceled your show. But Well, not only that, I had to... They didn't want to cast him at ABC, and I had to, I mean, um, I had to write Steve McPherson an email. Then head of the network. Head of the network at the time. Um, I wanted to cast him. I thought he was he was great. And, you know, the cast people there said, no, Steve doesn't like him. And I was like, well, I'll just call Steve. And they're like, you can't call Steve. No one does that. And I was like, well, okay. So I sent him an email, and I basically said, look, he's 
he's not McDreamy or McSteamy. He's Steve McQueen, right? And and um, you, you know, luckily they they let me cast him. And and you know, he was he had he had shot Hurt Locker, but he'd also done this pilot at Fox, this sort of weird haunted house pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was sort of looking around, you know. And and you know, what was great about Jeremy is. You know, there's a lot of actors who want to be leading men who would never be in an ensemble, and and he just wanted a good part, and he was attracted to it, and he was aw- awesome. You know, can he, you tell me anything to add to the legend? And I'm not saying it facetiously. I admire him so much, but the way that he speaks about acting being like just something he does in between his right. house flipping business. Well, he, he just, was, and he was going to be a professional bowler. What? Yeah, See, there we go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he grew up in Modesto, I think, <laughs> and and you know, was like a great bowler, and and oh, uh, given me such a gift today. <laughs> yeah. No, look, he's. Uh, I I loved that. You know, they were nice enough to to give us a Golden Globe, and he was the one who handed it to me on the stage, and that yeah. felt like. Definitely like a circle uh, that it closed. So plus, he's a big fan of Golden Globes jokes. I mean, Jennifer Lopez. Yes, will that happened. I was there for that. It's beautiful. I know it's true. Uh, we can't end on that though. No, we're not ending on that. Okay. Last thing: um, six episodes for fans of Fargo two, uh, Fargo season two, still to come. Can you leave us with a sentence? What you're excited about them seeing? Something they should be looking for? A a tone that that you want to impart? Uh, yeah, you know, it's a much it's a much bigger year, which implies there's a lot of you know. The show gets really big. You know what I mean? Well, there's a Sioux Falls massacre yeah. to come, I would imagine. Yeah, but, it, and, you know, I would say, you know, we we build to something that feels really, uh, you know, both emotionally powerful, um, but also, you know, satisfies that Cohen-esque sort of, you know, sense that things don't ever unfold exactly how you think they're going to. Yes. Um, and the, you know, I mean, I can't single out anybody's work because the performances are so great. But Patrick Wilson, when you see, you know, his journey and Kirsten Dunst by the end of the year, you know, the the journey that they take and the performances they that they give are really, you know, inspiring to me. So, oh, that's terrific! Yeah. I cannot wait. Um, no, I cannot thank you enough for uh, for coming by. Um, it's great to meet you in person, and congratulations on what already is a terrific season of television. Thank you, Fargo. Apparently- I get to go talk about myself some more now. I'm glad I warmed you up. I've often been the fluffer for these things. Uh, Fargo Season 2 airs Mondays on FX. Thanks, Noah. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on Podcasts.